RadioInfluence.com. Hey, everybody. It is America's Best Friend. And America's Best Friend, Jen Frederick, has many people that I dip in, I talk to, you know, I see what's, you know, what's going on. But the person you're going to hear from today, candidly, knows me intimately. Yeah. He delivered my baby, Dr. Matthew Bashar. Good morning. Hello. Hi, everyone. I did deliver that baby. How many years ago? She's 11. Yeah, 11 years ago. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're going to okay? talk about that in a hot second. Well, I didn't mess up? No. Good. You're not messing up. Um, so I want to begin by telling everyone why we're talking to you, and then I want to rewind, rewind a little bit. So Dr. Bashara sadly, was one of the first people who had COVID. And now that we are in the Northeast, at least, on the edge of another spike, and everyone's super mad that schools are closing, that their hairdresser might not be there, that they can't go to their stupid gym. When you hear Matt's story, you're going to lose your mind, and hopefully it'll make you act as a responsible human being. However, we got to start at the beginning. So I go to see Dr. Bashara for my first baby, who's a boy. And I don't know if you remember this at all, but you know, when you're having a baby, there's like a physician and they're behind a computer screen and they're like tap, 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 tap with their little, you know, questions in the computer. Like, oh, okay, I see you, eh? whatever. Tap, 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 tap. And oh, I, um, you know, have you had any like sushi? No, you didn't have sushi. Oh, tap, 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 tap. So I'm answering all these questions and all of a sudden you say, oh my God, it's you. Do you remember saying this to me? No. Yeah, you did. You were like, oh my God, it's you. I can hear your voice. Oh yeah, I do remember this. (laughs) And I think you were mildly annoyed, but highly professional. Fair? Fair. (laughs) No, you were just like, this is the annoying person that's on TV. And now I have to help her have a baby. Well, I used to watch you and I love your show. Did you find me the annoying one? Sometimes. Okay, that's fair. In general, you're one of my favorites. Yay, I love it. Okay, so yes, so we have a baby, then we have baby number two. And I have to say, for people who don't know the name Dr. Bashara, if you're maybe listening, I don't know, somewhere far away, I shared with you this morning that, you know, there's people that, you know, you when you're not a mom, you really don't know any other moms, right? And then you become a mom and you're part of this family of moms that you never wanted to join, but you're so happy they're there for you. And, you know, you have your little like, oh, you know, my son has food allergies. Oh, my son has ADHD. And so you'll be talking. And certainly once you get like two to three years out, you're not always sharing a birth story, right? Because you're kind of like sharing the poop story. But I have to say that I always am, so proud to say, because basically I earned you, um, that Dr. Bashar was my doctor. And everywhere you go, I said, it's sort of like the Easter bunny. People are like, oh, Dr. Bashar was your doctor? Um, Only in Philadelphia. Nah, people fly in from LA, I'm sure, to get a baby with you. No? No, New York, Manhattan. Yeah. Well, so I don't anyway, do deliveries anymore. I was very sad to hear I don't know, six weeks ago that you were not doing well because you had had COVID in the beginning. And 
you know, this, this podcast is here for a lot of fun and a lot of, you know, whatever levity, but it's also here to be like, listen the F up because this is what's up. So we were talking on the phone in my car. So it started for you with a weird cough, right? Yeah. Very early on. I'm going to correct you. I wasn't one of the first people. I was one of the first 10,000 people in the U S that's so it was pretty early. Yeah. Okay. So first 10,000 is like, now it's 200,000 deaths and millions of, right? It was early. It was so early that people were just kind of talking about this thing that might be coming our way and nobody was wearing masks and we were trying to practice the new term social distancing and staying clear of people and not embracing people. And I stopped shaking my patient's hands and kind of did like the sort of elbow bump and it was early. It was but early. You, were, you too were like, I'll do the mask when they tell me to do the mask. Yeah, I'm a rule follower in general. And so my family asked if I was wearing a mask and I said, no, the CDC doesn't recommend it. And so I was trying to stay clear and I'm always pretty fastidious and I was washing my hands a lot more than usual. And, um, and then it hit me. I just started developing a weird cough and it was weirder than any cough I've ever had before. And my primary doctor, who is kind of famous in the Philadelphia circles, he told me, you know, you're a healthcare worker. I've never heard a cough like this because it sounded like a bark, mm. like I was a barking dog. And I said, God, this is the weirdest cough. And, you know, I didn't feel that badly. I mean, I, was, I, I had a cough, so I stopped working and I started wearing a mask because I wanted to be sort of responsible. And I was yeah. still doing surgeries on my patients and I was wearing a mask and staying clear of everyone. And I didn't know anybody with COVID yet or coronavirus. Nobody was even calling it COVID at the time. They were all calling it coronavirus. And so I tried to stay clear as much as possible. And this was early March. And by mid-March, I went to get my first COVID test. And back in those days, they didn't have rapid testing or they said it was rapid, but they lost my test and my test had to be sent out to the West Coast. It was a send-in test and I work at the University of Pennsylvania, so they weren't doing the test on their own in-house, and it was just a cluster. And so it took about a week to get my results. And so in that interim, during that week, I rapidly deteriorated, had a terrible cough, started getting fevers, had a horrible headache, never lost my sense of taste or smell, canceled my office hours. And just to put things in perspective, in my more than 15 years in my practice, I have never called in sick other than one time for surgery. I had to have surgery. And so I, I, I skipped a week of work to heal. But I mean, I basically said, I'm staying home. I couldn't work, nor did and I- you were like, just to like, you're the pick pre-March, like you're Mr. Healthy guy. I mean, you eat healthy, you run, you're a very healthy dude. Like this was not like people can't see you, but you're a gorgeous, healthy, smarty pants, doctory dude. Fair? Yeah, I think your listeners should know I pay you to say that. <laughs> That's fair. Okay, so then- No, I mean- you I'm deteriorate in a week? Uh, probably, yeah, in about a week I deteriorated to the point where I called my primary and said, you know, I'm just, I've never had a cough like this. This is weird. And, you know, as a physician myself, I just knew something was up. And so we checked my oxygen levels at home and we saw that they were dropping at night when I was coughing. And so my primary, who, who actually, I think, pushed you into my practice. Dr. Mike. Dr. Mike. And he yep. said, go to the emergency room. 
you know, this new coronavirus thing is really weird and I've never heard a cough like that. So I want to get an x-ray. And I went to the emergency room a few blocks away from my house. And basically they looked at me and they said, you're not going anywhere. And they made me to an intensive care unit where I stayed for a week. So by and the end of- You're awake at this point? Like you're looking around? Yeah, I'm, I'm totally awake. Everything's fine. I'm hoping I would get better. They put me on hydroxychloroquine, which didn't really help. Nobody knew really what to do with me. Nobody knew how to treat it. All of my physicians were like, you know, this is kind of new for us and we don't really know about it. It's, you know, which was surprised me because I was like, don't, haven't we learned? You know, at that time when I went down, there were two people that had just, two people were dead in the United States. But, you know, makeshift hospitals were collapsing in China. People were sick, you know, all over the world. And I kept thinking, didn't the medical community in these other countries like communicate with the medical community and the intensive care pulmonology teams in the U.S. and tell them how to treat this? Or Yeah, here's like, what to expect. Here's what's coming your way. Right. You know, so apparently they did not. And so by the end of March... I really wasn't able to keep up. My oxygen requirements were increasing. My team was um, becoming very nervous and worried. Also, because I'm a, a physician in the health system, I think the higher ups, you know, the executive physicians didn't want something bad to happen to me. Not only because we just don't want anything bad to happen, but I don't think they wanted me to be at the smaller hospital and have something bad happen. So they were getting ready to transfer me to the main hospital, which is the University of Pennsylvania, where I work. And, um, and on the 27th of March, they said, well, we think it's time. You know, your oxygen requirements are increasing. It's time to intubate you. And so at that time, I was just exhausted, just from trying to breathe and trying to be comfortable. So I basically agreed and said, do that. I called my family and said, you know, they're going to intubate me. And you know, this is where all the important stuff in my life is in case. So real bad. quick, when you get intubated, because we're not doctors, like they're going to knock you out. Like you're not going to be conscious because you're going to be intubated. Right. So you're saying goodbye a little bit. Yeah. I started texting like goodbye to my family and to my loved ones and things like that. And people, everyone was upset. And my sister's my power of attorney. And so I called her up and told her what she needed to do and to take care of my loved ones and where my, you know, where my important paperwork was located. And she already knew. And she started crying. It was very emotional. Um, I actually, you know what? I thought it was going to be like when, you know, I do surgery. And so I thought it was going to be like me being completely asleep, but I actually had some awareness of it. And so I'd never, I'd never been intubated other than during surgery. And so I thought it was going to be in like a deep, deep sleep. But I actually ended up being aware of little little things. And we can talk about that later on. Yeah. And I did a podcast for Penn as well, where I touch upon some of the things that I was aware of, like bright lights and noises and things like that. So it was a little disruptive. It was much more, it was much more negatively impactful for me than I thought it was going to be. I thought I was just going to be asleep and not aware of anything. Like I had surgery. And so they intubated me and they transferred me to Penn, which is the main hospital. Yeah. He admitted me to that intensive care unit. So now at this point, I'd already been in the ICU for a week at the smaller hospital. And now I'm at the main hospital. And, you know, COVID was exploding. I mean, they were being, they were being inundated with COVID patients. They had to actually open up a whole new floor just to create rooms for people, myself included, to accommodate the volume of very sick patients. And I remember one of my physician friends, I called him up and said, you know, they want to intubate me. And he said, 
if they want to intubate, you should do it now because they're becoming fearful that they're going to run out of ventilators. And so now is the time to get one if you can get one. I mean, this is like crazy thinking, but, you know, unfortunately about probably during that first week after being intubated, I developed a stroke, Mm. a blood clot in my brain and it affected my vision and has affected my left arm and hand. And so, you know, I'm probably not going to be able to operate and do the things that I wanted that I was doing. I'm a minimally invasive surgeon at, at the university of Pennsylvania. And so I do gynecologic minimally invasive surgery. Mostly I don't deliver babies any longer. And you know, stop delivering babies because I was the best patient ever because I was the worst patient ever. The best patient ever. I, I, uh, once you were done with babies, I was like, well, what's the point? What's the point? I'll just wait till she becomes older and needs my help with something else. There you go. And so now that that's one of the fun things about being an obstetrician. You get to be friends with people when they're having their babies. And it's a, it's a, it's a fun moment in everyone's life usually. Yeah. And so I'm very appreciative that my patients let me into their lives in that capacity. But, you know, I actually remained in the hospital for about, I remained on the ventilator for 38 days and I remained in the intensive care unit for 50 days at the main hospital. And then they woke me up and alerted me to the fact that I'd had a stroke and my family, which was just terrifying and very traumatizing for everyone. And so then they realized I had lost part of my vision and the use of my left arm. And at that point, I mean, I fully couldn't grasp it because after being in a critical care situation and I, you know, I, I do surgery and stuff, but I never take care of critically ill patients. I didn't realize that you become very incapacitated. I lost 40 pounds, mm. lost my vision. I, uh, well, not all of it. I um, couldn't add, couldn't subtract. I had to be transferred to a stroke hospital for rehabilitation. So I went to a area place here in Philadelphia called Moss Rehab. So when you, okay, you've had this stroke, you can't add, you can't subtract. You went to medical school. You're like a well-renowned, like that's no bullshit. Like you're a special, you were a high level specialist in the field, right? So you're part genius, if not full genius. I should do this podcast with you all the time. How much money do I owe you now? Okay. So a million dollars. No, here's my question. Do you know when you're in the bed being transferred to the rehab facility that you're supposed to be able to add and you can't add? Like, do you have enough, like, I'm supposed to be adding and I can't add, or are you just like, I can't add? Well, no, I was just stunned. I didn't realize what I couldn't do until I okay. got to rehab hospital. So at the rehab hospital, they know what they're, they're familiar with your incapacities or your deficits. And so they would confront me with like multiplication tables. And I kind of looked at them like, okay, I'll do math. But then I couldn't do it. And then I was like, okay, I can't add. I can't do multiplication tables. Yeah. I would read a passage and not really understand the, like the full grasp of the, and the nuances of whatever passage they gave me. Because of my vision problems, I would only do half of the problems, not the other half. Because when you have a, that kind of a stroke, you neglect certain things on, it's called left neglect. And so you li- you neglect things on the left side. And so, you know, it was a whole new world for me and I'm a gynecologist. So I didn't, I never did stroke medicine or rehabilitation medicine, or I wasn't a neurologist and it was all brand new to me, but you know, luckily, you know, I quickly, I have, I have multiple therapists that were amazing. I have a physical therapist to help me regain strength in my arm. 
I have a cognitive therapist that I see all the time. I have a psychological therapist to help me deal with the loss of my capacities and my career and whatnot. It was hard. So I, I'm in therapy all day long. So I don't want you to get political, okay? <laughs> but when the president goes to Walter Reed, and I think everyone thought candidly that he's overweight, he's old, he's a goner. Like, I, I think, you know, in the newsroom, candidly, we were like, the president might die, you know, because they keep telling us about these pre-existing conditions and we've never seen him wear a mask. And he's better in like four hours or he's telling us he's better. Who knows what the truth is? Did that piss you off? It did. It made me a little, it made me angry. It mostly made me sad. Sad because, you know, when I got sick and I was, I was falling apart in the intensive care unit, I actually requested remdesivir, which is uh, the medication from Gilead. Yeah. And um, they said, you know, it's a shortage and it's not available for you right now because it's really being earmarked for critically ill pregnant patients. Really? So I got sick just, I think, too early on in the pandemic. It was very early. And so, you know, Trump got... The president got plasma. He he received remdesivir, steroids. They learned a lot over the over the ensuing months of the summer and the spring, after everybody in New York was dying and whatnot. They realized that giving steroids, dexamethasone, would help decrease the body's immune response to this. And they didn't give me any of that. I didn't. They didn't know. Yeah. I'm not blaming anyone, but frankly, it was just so early. It made, it, it really just made me sad that I got sick so early. And I kept thinking, I wish I had just gotten sick in June or July because I probably would not have had such a bad go of it. Yeah. And then, you know, so we're now in, you know, November and, you know, since May, we've been told like, okay, we're going to, you can go outside now, but you're going to be screwed in November. And I think the easier it became to live within this, within these rules, right? Because I think most of us are generally washing our hands more, wearing a mask, you know, not go, I haven't been to an ACDC concert all summer. Um, I, I think we've, we've, we're like, okay, we're doing this. And, you know, you're certainly not hearing of as many people in your immediate bubble, if you will, getting sick. So now when they, when they tell us these numbers, especially, you know, where I live in Montgomery County are, are shooting up, I've got these kids who literally they didn't, they didn't go to school. They finally get to go to school two days a week. So they've been in school eight days. And today we learn they only have two more days and then they have to shut back down. People are angry and I'm worried that they think everyone's going to, if you get it, you're like the president, you're going to be able to just do this in a minute. And so I've heard people even now, and I have to say when this first started, you know, in March, we're on the call and everyone was talking about herd immunity and all that jazz. I'm like, oh, give it to me. I'd love to lose like five pounds and not have to go to work for two weeks. I literally, and my, one of my bosses, who's one of my closest friends, like muted me on the call. She's like, you are such an idiot. If you think you can get this, you know, like, I think I shared with you, you know, this probably that like, I never get a flu shot. Like for 10 years, I haven't had a flu shot because I got it. Like, I don't know, five or six, 10 years ago. And I lost five pounds and it was amazing. It was like a restart. I was looking good. I got to watch Made in Manhattan. No one 
fucked with me all day. And so I, I did say like, I could take two weeks off. And, and I think because of what the president showed us on TV, wherever you are politically, you do have, I think people are cavalier because they think they're going to be okay. I'm amazed at how cavalier people are. My family's not at all because they saw what I went through and they're, they're traumatized. So our bubble is pretty strict. Um, and I don't mind the bubble. I mean, I'm used, I've, we've gotten so used to it. We wash our hands a lot. We all wear our masks all the time. We even try, even though we're in a bubble, we try not to eat. So, because, you know, you can transmit the virus more so during eating and they, they find that's, so people who want to go out to a restaurant, I think go home, get carry out, eat by yourself. Like if the whole country would just get strict for a little while, we would be able to eradicate this thing at some point. I mean, the way everybody's getting mad about people not going to school and not being able to do things or the gym, it boggles my mind. I mean, my whole life has been turned upside down. I was on the precipice of death. I had a tracheostomy, so I have a new scar in my neck. Um, I was septic. I lost 40 pounds. I couldn't add. I couldn't subtract. I've lost my career. My family, my sister has had to come and take care of me. And she's been with me since May when I got released from the hospital. And she lives in Michigan. So her and her husband moved here from Michigan, basically, to drive me around and take me to all my therapy appointments. I mean, this has had a a multifaceted impact on multiple people's lives. So everyone in my family is pretty strict. And so for the Christmas holidays, we're all getting COVID testing and then we're getting COVID testing every week just to make sure none of us are asymptomatic spreaders. You know, my grandmother's 92, my parents are in their eighties and seventies and I don't want to get it again either. I mean, it's possible. It's probably, I have, I still have antibodies, but what does that mean? And so the wait, okay, is- so that's a good question. All right, so it is going to be Thanksgiving, and everyone's got a different thing, right? So my dad is 75, perfectly healthy, but he lives with my stepmom, who he's married to, who has um, COPD, which is the 2021 way to say emphysema, aka she smoked her face off her whole life. So they, since February, they're like, you can't come visit. We love your kids, but we don't even want to like, my dad even didn't want to um, do a Zoom happy hour with us because he's like, Sad he can't see us, right? So here's what I did. I quarantined for a week-ish within the confines of work. Like I just, you know, again, I didn't go to, I didn't really, I went to work and that was about it, right? And then I did a, a rapid test and then I hopped on a plane. I wore a shield and a mask. I wiped everything down, the rental car I wiped down and I surprised my dad because I knew he wouldn't let me come see him, you know, and we had a great visit and I had a hotel room booked. I didn't think he'd let me stay, but he was like, yeah, you're negative. So my question is like, if people want to see their loved ones, can we take a rapid test and then go see them? Like what would, what's your advice there? Well, there was just an article, you know, there are a lot of articles coming out talking about how you should appropriately remain in a quarantine pod so that you can see your family. Yeah. So we are actually making my sister and her family quarantine for two weeks. I've been in quarantine the whole time, along with my sister, who's taking care of me and her husband. And we're getting COVID tested this week, this next week. 
And then when we land in California, we're getting COVID tested again. And then we can enter the pod. But I'll be honest, I'm still probably going to wear a mask around my 92-year-old grandmother. We're not going to hug and kiss like we normally do. We're going to really just try to, just in case, you know, there's like 10 of us or 15 of us, just in case somebody is asymptomatically positive. And then our plan is to get everybody tested every week. So, so we're pretty strict. I guess my question is this, like, if I start getting my kids tested once a week, do I then have to quarantine? Like, is one better than the other? Like, I feel like if I'm negative, I don't have to quarantine, meaning... I think, I, that, I think the test is better. If you get the antigen test, if you get the antibody test, that just tells you you've had it. So you have to make sure to get the antigen test. That's the one if you're positive or not? Yes. Yeah, I don't do that antibodies thing because I think it's not good, right? They're saying it's 50% accurate at best. Well, and it doesn't necessarily mean, it just means you've had the infection. So if you get the antigen test and you're negative, and then I personally, I would get another one in a week. And if you're still negative, I think it's safe for you to like visit with your family because you've had two negative tests separated by one week. As long as you've been safe and in kind of quarantine that whole time. Now, if you've been to your ACDC concert in the interim, you know, at that point, you have to start the clock all over again. I mean, right, 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 right. you need a test and then wait a week and get another test. But if you're just doing what we're doing, which is staying at home and not doing anything. And I mean, all of my therapy is virtual and I don't. What about see- Wawa? Do you, Wawa is like a 7-Eleven and Phil. Oh, he's saying no. I don't. Because I-, I keep saying this about the Wawa. These people who are like, I can't send my kid to, just so you know, I want my kids in school. And my one kid who I would talk more about, Brody has said he was sad. You know, it was not good for him. It is not good. With, it won't be good for him. It's happening in two weeks. Who am I kidding? But anyway, I keep saying to these people who are like, I'm keeping my kid home from school. I'm like, you're keeping your kid home from school, but you're going to Wawa. Like, I feel like a 7-Eleven, Walmart, grocery store, a school. I don't, I don't do any of that. that. Not to not to not to give false advert or free advertising to Instacart, but I order everything through Amazon and Instacart. Yeah. I don't. We don't go anywhere. We get in our car. We wear our mask. If we drive somewhere, I drive to the gas station, and then I wear gloves to like pump the gas. Yeah. You know, I never used to do this before. I wear gloves everywhere. I walk the dog and then I wash my hands immediately when I walk in the house, which, you know, I didn't used to do that. You know, I would walk the dog and, you know, sometimes I would wash the hands, but now it's like, it's religious. So when, when are we going to be done with this? So here's the next question. Okay. So I watched 60 minutes cause I'm a good, you know, citizen of television. I'm a consumer. And I don't know if you saw 60 minutes about the vaccine, la la la. So everyone has been waiting for the vaccine. Right. We're all sitting here waiting for the vaccine. And when you ask someone, you're going to take that vaccine. No one's going to take the vaccine. Right. No, Matt, I'm going to take it. Will you take it for the first round? I will take it when the FDA says that it has been shown to be safe. So the Pfizer vaccine looks promising. It looks like it's safe. But, you know, these vaccine companies have to, you know, all the pharmaceutical companies go through a round of phase one through three testing. And along with that is the safety profile. And so are we going to know if the vaccine creates cancer in 10 years? No. 
are we going to know that my code infection is going to create pulmonary cancer for me in 10 years? No, but you can you imagine if no one took the, if nobody took the polio vaccine and everybody was afraid of it, you know, early on in my career, nobody wanted to take the HPV vaccine. I was going to bring that up because didn't people like get partial paralysis from that? No, but you know, some, I had one person faint from it. Nobody got paralysis from it that I know of, you know, is there one person that, you know, listen, a lot of people get COVID and don't have symptoms. I got COVID and I had cytokine storm and I almost died. So, you know, everyone has a different reaction. So is someone going to have a heart attack after getting the COVID vaccine? Maybe, but when you think about vaccine medicine, you have to just embrace it. It's like you're part of a herd. You have to just do it just to do it. And if you have an adverse reaction, what's the alternative? Not doing it and having society being unimmunized and having polio or mumps or smallpox. You know, all of these vaccines, every vaccine has a negative impact for someone. But it's one of those things that you do, I feel, for your civic duty. You just do it to do it. You know, there are a lot of women who want to go out into the the bushes and have their babies naturally but no. studies show that studies show that's not safe so the the nat the natural birthers are like well okay i'll have my baby in the hospital because it's safe you just do what you need to do for society and you put away some of your fears or some of your anxieties and you just do it and if you are one of the people who has an adverse reaction well then all of you people should be really afraid of covid because i had an adverse reaction to coronavirus yeah I mean, that makes it, sense. no, I just I'm ready to go. Like if they as you say, like I'm not like apparently Putin gave some vaccine to his daughter who I've nicknamed Natasha, even though I don't know her name. Like we haven't I, seen no. Natasha, so I don't know how it's going over there in Russia. But like, I, I mean, someone's going to have to take the vaccine or we're, we're going to be doing this for the rest of our lives. Right. And exactly. that's the other thing. Like when we talk about these kids, like, you know, as much as I don't want my kid to be sad mentally, I definitely don't want them to be sick. You know, Landry, um, my 11 year old, your best friend, she was going to school and uh, they wear masks, they socially distance, they have to eat in the cafeteria or the auditorium. It's kind of prison-like, but at least it's something. And we got an email from the teacher because the school sent an email and said that one of the teachers tested positive, but no one was within six feet of this person for more than, I know it's so stupid how they do this, right? So of course, all the, the kids aren't dumb. I mean, come on. And um, the, they kind of knew who their teacher, that it was their teacher. And so um, like Landry said, you know, she was in person that day and half the class is on a Zoom. And one of the kids on the Zoom blurted out because the teacher was on a Zoom, which was unusual and blurted out, are you the one with COVID? And um, the teacher was like, do I look sick to you? And the kids were like, no. And she kept going. But then that night at like five o'clock at night, she sent a very detailed email and she said, I have tested positive for COVID. That's why I wasn't at school. She explained the protocols that she used in her classroom. And then she was like, I'm going to be on Zoom as, as long as I feel good, you know? And so Landry, you know, we were scared candidly and she was upstairs in her room and my son Brody, his tutor was coming over. He was on the way. And I said, uh, I need to tell you that we have this email. I don't know if you want to come inside my house. 
because I don't know what our risk, what our level of exposure is, right? And he was like, I'm totally good. Like we'll do, you know, they take safety protocols when they're here in the house too. And he's part of our bubble. And, but Landry heard me on the phone and she goes, do I have to stay in my room until for two weeks? And I'm like, nobody. I said, but we are going to get you tested. And she started sobbing and she's like, what if I'm positive, right? And I'm like, well, first thing, I need to know if you're positive on day one, because there's so many things we can do to help you if you're positive. And number two, you know, I want, and this is like moving on, like, I feel like testing should be normal, normalized. Like, I love that Landry got tested. It tickled her nose. You know, it's not the best thing, but it's certainly not a flu shot. And then she was able with pride, candidly, to tell her friends that she's negative. And also, it also proved to her the protocols work, you know, as you say, like, you know, the mask is working, the hand washing is working, the stay, if you, if you're, if you're a rule follower, right, you can't do it half-ass, you can't be like, I'm here with my mask down below my nose, you know, uh, eating my sandwich that I just got from the drive-through without washing my hands, right, like, you have to, like, think about reducing your risk from your hands before they enter your face, right? Exactly. You just have to follow the rules. You know, someone said a couple, a couple months ago, I think it was the CDC, had said, if everyone would adhere to wearing a mask, we would eradicate this in a matter of weeks. Really? That's what they said. I mean, it boggles my mind to see people not wearing their masks and trying to live their best life. Like what is so bad about, you know, I mean, in the operating room and as, and as a physician, you wear a mask all the time. Yeah. So for me, you know, do I love it all the time? No. Would I rather be maskless? Yes. But now uh, without a mask, I feel naked. It's like wearing a seatbelt. You yeah. know, you're, I mean, a little bit older than you, I think, Jennifer, but. Probably because I'm 27. You know, the seatbelt rules and I'm only, I'm, I'm less than 30. The seatbelt rules came into play right when I was turning 16. And I remember being like, wear a seatbelt. Who wears a seatbelt? Right. Can you imagine not wearing a seatbelt? Yeah. Remember how mad we were when the cars started beeping? I'm like, who in the name of Chrysler and Ford decided this car gets to beep at me about wearing a seatbelt. You remember the automatic seatbelts that they had? Yes, because I thought I was gonna, cause I'm short, so I could never, it never worked out for, it's like the massage chair in the nail salons. None of those things work out for me, no. Well, the reality is I, we probably will never not wear a mask. We probably will always wear masks during flu season or just out and about, just like just like a lot of the, a lot of our Asian, yeah. a lot of our Asian, um, friends and colleagues do and I do have Asian colleagues who you know in their society wearing a mask was not a big deal but I have to say early on when I first started developing the cough I took a flight and I wore a mask not because I was worried about the flight at the time I wore a mask because I wasn't sure what I had and I wanted to protect the people around me and everybody looked at me like I had three heads <laughs> now if I wasn't wearing a mask people would just run me off the plane and that's a good thing so, okay, in the mask, one, one thing I want to ask you about the mask. So, you know, like, you know, I've lived in Taiwan, uh, you know, in Canada, you, many Asian people in Toronto wear a mask all the time. I've never seen, previous to now, an Asian person with, like, a sparkly, bedazzled eagle's mask. 
And candidly, you know, I have a couple of those, right? But I feel like the medical mask- Jennifer's closet. Right, exactly. Um, The medical mask thing, I like that it's disposable and I feel like I can talk more in it. Like, are we supposed to be running around town in a bandana? What are, I mean, what are we doing? Well, I'm no mask expert. I'm the gynecologist, remember? But I think any, any face covering that will stop your spittle or your projectile- your projectile cough and sneeze from going over all over everything and contaminating other services. I think it's a good thing. I think for the, if you don't have a surgical mask, I think putting a bandana probably works, but I don't know. They do say certain masks are better than others. And when I was sick, I wore an N95 because I was really sick and nobody got sick. You know, they did a tracer and none of the people, none of my patients, none of the people I operated on, got COVID when I was really sick. That's got to make you feel and so of good. Course, you know, it was probably very scary for all the nurses having to take care of me and doctors. I remember them coming into the intensive care unit in like a Martian bubble mask, probably deathly afraid that they were going to catch COVID. And I was in what was called a COVID ward or COVID unit. So everybody in my, everybody in the intensive care unit at Penn had COVID and they actually had to get volunteers, people who were willing to work there. And some of my work colleagues actually, they said they volunteered so they could stay there. And in fact, one of my surgical technicians, she was so sweet. She said she volunteered just so she could pray beside my bed. So, you know, those people really, those, those frontliners really put their life at risk and they weren't sure, but an N95 is that your best medicine if you have one. But you need to be fitted and you need to know how to wear it properly. And it's a little bit more uncomfortable. Yeah. All right. So now that you're not 100%, but you're on the road to wherever the, like, what do you, what, I'm sure that you could tell me for an hour, all the lessons you've learned and how grateful you are, but like, what are you going to do next? How you, like you've, you know, you have impacted so many people. I know that's not going to end. What's your plan? I don't know. I'm going to try to reinvent myself. The The team at Penn, the administrators and the um, executives, they're helping me try to find my way. Because of my visual loss, it probably will not be possible for me to return to the world of surgery. I'm not sure. My hand doesn't work correctly right now. I don't know. They say I need a year of recovery. So March 27th is my full one year or maybe May, 20, May 22nd, I don't know. I had the stroke in April and I got released on May 5th. So I don't know, My I'm gonna wait till the spring to see where I'm at with regards to the motion in my hand and my ability to operate. I mean, I miss my patients, I love medicine and I need some, I need your husband to get you pregnant so that I can see you again. Well, well you could do that with, there's also, you know, there's. Bradley Cooper's out there. I'm sure he needs another kid. <laughs> well, actually, I don't do obstetrics anymore. So, well, I don't do medicine. And we can just meet for coffee, socially distance. I'm so, yeah, I'm in for that. I just want people to hear that. I, I, I mean, safe to say, before you got COVID, you weren't super freaked out about getting COVID. No. Right? Like, you didn't think it would. In fact, I thought it was going to be no big deal. And I kept telling people, because the president was saying it's no big deal. The C- Everybody was kind of saying like, oh, it's like the flu. People die from the flu. And, you know, we all get the flu and it'll be fine. And and I had no other medical issues, no comor- comorbidities. So I was kind of like, well, I'll probably get it. 
And if I get it, it won't be a big deal. It'll be like the flu. Well, I was proven wrong. I mean, now I'm deathly afraid of getting it again. My family's afraid of getting it, getting it at all. And so we're just trying to be safe. And, you know, I'm glad that I didn't infect any of my other patients. I took precautions. But it really, it really was, it really was uh, something that changed my life. And it hit me a lot harder than I ever thought it would. And I'm the only person that I know that it hit really hard. And so I know other people that didn't, it didn't hit very hard. And they're a little bit more cavalier because they're like, oh, I got it. And I just had a headache and lost my sense of taste or smell. And it really saddens me because I, even if you're asymptomatic, you know, you're going to spread it to somebody else who then might have my reaction to it. Right. That's what's so sad. It's like, yeah, it might not affect you very badly, but you should try to wear a mask and, and adhere to good, good hygiene policies, not for yourself, but for the others around you. And is there any truth like- that vodka or red wine is a good either prophylactic treatment I like to use that. I'm sure there's a study that proves that vodka. Well, I mean, you know, we could inject bleach and see if that works. (laughs) I'm sure, I'm sure vodka and red wine is very good for it. Okay, good. So I should keep up with my alcohol regimen. Absolutely. And then, but we also have to, you want us to walk and have good lung capacity in case we get it, right? I by the way, I took a flu shot because I was going to see my dad and because if you get it with the flu, then you're definitely a goner. That's medical speech. I don't know if you remember those words, goner. Goner, yeah. <laughs> well, I did, my, I did get my flu shot a couple of weeks ago, and I got all of my vaccines. And you know what? I mean, I'm just, I'm an embracer of vaccines. And when this COVID vaccine comes, hopefully, I will embrace it. All right. You know that I love you. I love you, too. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you for having my baby you know, getting the baby out of the baby. I have your baby. Thank you for keeping your baby out of my house. (laughs) I am keeping my, and the bottom line is I like the message. These are the things I've learned here today. I'm going to get the shot. I'm going to be especially good around people because it matters. I'm going to keep drinking vodka because (laughs) that's how I'm going to get through. But you have to drink your vodka and red wine with me only. Yay! Socially just, so yeah. And that's the last thing. Like when we're drinking our vodka, are we 10 feet away just to be safe? Like six seems too small. You know, I, I see, I see a lot of my friends in, um, in my backyard and I am 16 feet away. I take my mask off, you know, you I, and I tell them, I'm say, I say, I'm trying to keep you safe. You know, I think if we all think of, I'm trying to keep, you know, when I wore my mask on the plane, that was uncomfortable. I didn't like doing it. I mean, I would have loved to have just had a cocktail, take my mask off and throw caution to the wind. But the reality is we have to be good participants in society for the good of the society as a whole and not selfishly just say, well, I want to sit and have cocktails and live my best life. That's my message. Yeah. At least I think, I don't think we do it enough. I see people sitting and eating and hanging out. It's like, why? Yeah. It's interesting when this first started and we were trying to figure out this whole bubble thing or whatever we're going to do. There's a family that lives on our street that my daughter's friends with their child. We're friends with them, but we weren't like best friends with them. There's a whole nother neighborhood with where all our best, best friends are. And so with our best, best friends, there was like, you know, four families, maybe five families total. And all of us were like, okay, we're, you know, we didn't see each other the first six weeks. Right. 
But right. when it, when we were starting to see each other, I was like, hey, this is our bubble. And I'm, you know, I was an outlier because I was still going, you know, into work by the, you know, the back of a parking lot. I wasn't going to the building or center city, but I was leaving my home. So that's an outlier at that point, right? No one, you were knocked out. So here's what you missed. A lot of Zoom happy hours and no one left their house. So I said to these people, I'm the outlier. And I'm willing to tell you when, like, if, you know, I'm going to the grocery store, I'm going to tell you I'm going to the grocery store. Because for me, especially in that time, that was a big thing. Like, no one was going to the grocery store. But I would, with my mask, pop in, wash my hands, the whole thing. I would always do my steering wheel in my car and everything. This family up the street, I was like, hey, just so you know, like, you know, I talked to the other families. You can be part of our bubble. I'm going to let you know when I'm doing this. Just to... They looked at me like I was crazy. And I'm like, no, I just want you to know that, like, this is, I'm going to tell you if I'm, if someone tries to touch me at Wegmans, you know, or what, because I felt like everyone needed to know. And I think that's the thing is that the, some of these people, like, and the other thing that pissed me off with my daughter and her teacher, it happened a week before Halloween. We had her tested in seven hours, right? Other people were like, that could ruin Halloween if they're positive. Who cares? I was like, it's really going to ruin Halloween because you're going to give an entire neighborhood COVID. Yeah, it's but, uh, it really boggles my mind how everyone worries about the minutia. I have So wait, where do you think my bubble should end? Like, do you have a bubble recommendation? I, I think a bubble should be small. Okay. Because the larger you get, there's always a weak link. We talked a little bit about this. Yeah. The younger people are your weak link. They just, either they don't know or they don't have the ability to think it through. You know, they're being romantically involved with other kids. And, oh, he's trying to make out with girls. Right. And <laughs> Tinder and all this other stuff. And he's so, not on Tinder that I know of. You need to keep your bubble small, I think. That's what my family's doing. We're keeping our bubble small. But your family likes you. My family doesn't like me. That's a whole different situation. It is a different situation. So because they don't like you, they're going to give you COVID. But, you know, if you're going to expand your bubble, everybody has to quarantine and then get tested and then you can expand your bubble. But, you know, I have a nephew who likes to go to a skate park and skateboard. And, you know, he, I think because they're outside, they think they don't have to wear a mask. And so, you know, I always view my my nephew. He's 21 as kind of a weak link COVID yeah. carrier. But, you know, even though I'm not a weak link. I still try to eat my dinner, not directly across from my sister or my bubble mates, because, you know, I might pick up COVID when I was in therapy. I mean, I've been tested recently, so I know I'm yeah. negative, but that's because we're getting ready to enlarge our bubble. We're all getting ready for the holidays. So all right, we're all getting tested. So well, when test you get back, we'll both take a test. And you're okay with me doing the one hour test? I know there's like the PCR, PCL, and P. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll take my test. I have my little testing spot in Maniunk. I love that. They know me. They love me. Well, everybody knows you, Jen. You're famous. <laughs> um, and then we can go for a socially distanced walk. That would, I've done that. That would be great. We Sometimes can I have a sippy cup in my hand. Okay, I take it you're going to be drinking. Mm -hmm. Well, as long as you bring a cocktail for me, I'm fine with that. Done. All right. You're the best. I love you. Stay awesome. You're the best. Be safe. And so I love your messages. I love it all. 
And uh, keep kicking the world's ass. I'm going to keep trying. I'm on my road to recovery, my new normal. Love you. This is a Crush Performance with Jeff Crushell Quick Fix on Radio Influence. Ladies and gentlemen, we have got a failing grade. When we go back to 1975 and look at the data that the World Health Organization puts out during that time frame, if we fast forward to today, the world obesity rates have tripled since 1975. Not a great trend. The last major calculation on global obesity and overweight numbers was back in 2016. And at that time, 39% of adults 18 and over were overweight. 39% men, 40% women. 13% of the world's population were obese. These are 2016 numbers and they're alarming. And just to set the stage, overweight is defined as a body mass index between 25 and 29 obesity is defined as a body mass index of 30 plus. We'll talk about the body mass index in a second, but those are the guidelines that we're using to define uh, those numbers right there. When we look at the trends and the projections based on what's happened over the last decades, it's projected that by 2020, 83% of men will be overweight or obese and 72% of women. And when it comes to our children, we are in dire, dire straits. Big trouble on the horizon unless we start correcting things right now. Crush Performance with Jeff Crushell can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.